Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, your love is magnificent. It's extravagant. Father, it is of more value than all the riches that this world can provide. It extends, Father, to the chief of sinners. Lord, it is given to those who are so unworthy. It's given to us. Father, we marvel that you love us. Father, we marvel as we look inward and we see how we are so prone to spurn who you are. And yet, Father, you love us. Father, you describe your love to us in the Old Testament as a love that is steadfast. It is not like so much love we experience from men in this world that is fickle, that is conditional, that is often changing. Father, you love us to the end. And Father, it is because of that great love wherewith you loved us that you sent Jesus to save us from our sins. It was your love that motivated his coming that you would save a people for your name from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation and that you would create and make us a kingdom of priests So, Father, we marvel at this extravagant display of your grace. And we give thanks, Father, that your love found even us. Lord, I pray today that if there is someone here who has not known that love in their own hearts, Father, today, would you work a work of grace? May you open the word to them. May it illumine them. And Father, may they cry out in faith to Christ as their Savior. And Father, those of us who do know you, may we be driven to love you more and to live out that love as we live to glorify your great name. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit today. We pray all this. In the name of Christ our Savior, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And again, we are looking at, as we finish 1 Peter, which was the path of a pilgrim, 2 Peter shows us how do we live as pilgrims. How do we find the power that is needed to live as though we don't belong in this world. And of course, we've been building this as Peter builds his argument in 2 Peter on verse 3 of chapter 1 that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. And so we've been looking at how power for pilgrims comes through and in the knowledge of of Christ. And in particular, we have been talking about, as we've been going through 2 Peter verse by verse, how Peter calls us to walk in freedom. And again, what we're looking at our text, verses 5 through 11, is based upon or builds upon what he says in verse 4 that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We're free. And so as we've been freed, we now have an obligation to live as people who have been freed. And Peter has gone through and described for us those different things. And so just to quickly recap what we've looked at, every time I do these recaps, I'm always thinking like, are you guys thinking, shouldn't you have just done that the last time and then it wouldn't have been as long? I don't know, that's maybe just me. 
Because like, I take 45 minutes to go over this, these first two points that we talked about. So the conditions of freedom. We're freed from our corrupt desires. Again, looking back at chapter 4 or verse 4. And then we're free to labor intensely. And we took out the point that uh, what Peter says in verse 5, that for this reason that we have escaped the corruption in the world, we're to make every effort, we're to be zealous, we're to, we're to work hard at living a life of freedom. And then what does that look like? And as we saw in our text, verse 5, and then particularly verse 6, he gives us these, verse 6 and verse 7, he gives us a list of virtues. And this inward, we are to pursue inward and outward transformation. Inward transformation looks to be built upon faith that seeks moral excellence or virtue that brings about knowledge of God that then produces within us an inner self-control. And then that inner self-control becomes the thing that catalyzes us to live and pursue outward transformation so that we are steadfast, that we're seeking godliness, that we are seeking to love each other with Philadelphia. That's the term that's used there, brotherly affection. And that ultimately the goal, the end, the, the primary virtue that is to be seen in those who are freed from the corruption of this world is love. That we love others particularly as god in christ jesus has loved us again we noted how paul elsewhere speaks of how the only thing that matters circumcision doesn't matter for anything neither does uncircumcision but the only thing that matters is faith working through love he says this in galatians and this is what peter is pointing us to notice what bookends these faith and love so that is the path of freedom. And then this morning, Lord willing, I'd like us to finish this passage by looking at the results of freedom. Now, some of you may have heard this story or know this story before, um, but I thought it was appropriate to tell it again because if you haven't heard, it's a good one. And it also really works well with what we're looking at in this passage. Um, when my wife and I moved back up here to Pittsburgh after I was completing seminary, we moved in with my parents for a while, and that was fun. Um, but uh, we realized very quickly we needed our own place. And so uh, it was, thankfully, the, the, the Lord was gracious to us, and the market wasn't crazy like it is right now. And we were able to find a house just down the street a little bit in Carnegie. And so, you know, we have that, that time where, you know, they, they're moving out or whatever, and, and uh, they, they moved out on one day, and we got to move in at that evening, that last of the day that they moved out. And it was a snowy day, and, and, uh, and, and there, we didn't have anything to move in. But I told my wife, I said, we have an air mattress. We're going to sleep the first night in our, in our uh, house. So we set up the air mattress. I'm not sure how thrilled she was about it, but whatever. We did it anyways. Um, so we, we slept there that first night. Then the next morning we got up and we were starting to look through things. And they left some stuff in the basement. And, and then in the, uh, in the uh, upstairs hallway um, closet, I looked up on this shelf. And there looked like what looked like a, a rolled up piece of ham. And I was very excited. Like, is this like some artisanal ham? If, if, if you're not familiar with me or you're new here, I love ham. And you'll, you'll figure that out very soon. So I, I take this thing down, and it's wrapped in canvas, and it's not a ham. It is Uncle Bill's violin. That's what it says on it, Uncle Bill's violin. So I look at this thing, and I unwrap it, and lo and behold, look at what I pull out. Uncle, well, Uncle Bill's violin. Now, this is, it's obviously not in the best condition it obviously hadn't been very cared for very well but i thought okay well we got a violin you know who, who, you know so i knew i took violin when i was a kid um in elementary school when i was going to uh hoover elementary in mount lebanon and so i know that inside these uh whatever you call these things what do you call these things katie the holes where the sound comes out uh, okay the sound holes where the sound the holes where the sound comes out all right um I know that in there, you can look in there, and there's a maker mark or maker um, sticker inside there. So I, I look in there, and you can, you can do this too if you want to. It's, it's an exciting, it's, it was very exciting for me the minute I looked in there because I looked down in there, and lo and behold, I see Antonius Stradivarius. Now, if you know anything about violins, Stradivariuses are very valuable, like a million dollars. 
We just paid for our house. We can buy a few more houses with this violin. Or so I thought. Well, what I did was we took this um, to the Home and Garden Show, and they have an antiques appraiser that comes, and she looked at it, and she said, well, I have, I have bad news for you. It's not a real Stradivarius. It was a fake. It didn't have the necessary ingredients. Now, it's a fine violin, but it's not a Stradivarius. It doesn't have the characteristics of what a Stradivarius would have. And my hopes were dashed. Of course, I actually knew this already. I had done some research, and every Stradivarius, they know where every Stradivarius is. So there's no long-lost Stradivarius, and certainly there's no long-lost Stradivarius in a closet in Carnegie. But nonetheless, this says it's one thing, but it truly isn't. What we're going to look at today and what Peter's going to point us to is how we can determine genuine faith, genuine believers, and that we ought to take pains, be diligent to confirm and examine our own lives. That this is the result of this freedom. And if we truly have the freedom that Peter speaks of, we will have the ingredients that go along with that freedom. Look with me in verse 8. So verse 8 of 2 Peter. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are the results of freedom? The first thing we see is it is a fruitful life. The results of freedom bring about a fruitful life. Peter is turning to the reason on why he calls on his readers to work hard on having these virtues, of supplementing their faith with these number, with these number of different things that he mentions. Now, a few things to note, particularly about these virtues that he had just spoken of. They are a chain. They're essential, and they're also progressive. As a chain, they hold together. If you, if you lose a link out of a chain, is the chain any good? No. So it's not as though we can pick and choose these. We're to have all of them in action in our lives. And that is why Peter says in verse 8, these qualities, all of them, if they're yours. So Peter is calling us to recognize we need all of these things. And then secondly, he's calling us to recognize if they are currently yours. He's calling us to evaluate not our past, but our present. Where are you today? Not where were you, not have you ever, but rather to have a full and complete current working of these things. Do we currently possess them? If these qualities are yours and are increasing The underlying Greek there implies the idea that they are reigning over us. Do we currently possess them? And not only do we possess them, but are we growing in them? Notice what he says here, that if these qualities are yours and are increasing, notice what they do. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing statement. Ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bare knowledge of Christ is not enough. It is not enough to simply have the facts. In fact, Peter 
is conceiving of the possibility that one can have knowledge of Christ and still be ineffective and unfruitful. Throughout God's dealings with His people, there have always been people who have the correct knowledge but lack the result of that knowledge in their lives. I mean, we see it with the nation of Israel. Here is a nation that saw God demonstrating Himself in love to His people in miraculous ways. There, I mean, oceans split open. They walked through on dry land. God led them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. I mean, where is your God? There He is. And yet, what did they do when they got into the promise or got into the wilderness? I'm so tired of this delicious food that falls from heaven. They complained to Moses. Oh, it would have been better that we would go back to Egypt. Unfruitful. And ineffective in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the Pharisees. These were the experts in the law. They had a lot of knowledge. They had more knowledge than probably anybody in this room, myself included, particularly of the Old Testament, particularly of the law. They had a lot of knowledge. And when the Lord of glory came to them, when their Messiah came to them, what did they do to Him? They killed Him. Paul talks about how knowledge can be a path not to genuine godliness, but to prideful arrogance. So, knowledge is necessary. We need to know the content of who God is. We need to know the message of His Word, but it is not enough unless it truly impacts the way you live every day. There is substance to our faith. There is knowledge, but knowledge brings about change because you cannot, you truly do not know Christ unless you're changed by Christ. Every encounter we see in the Scriptures where people see the glory of God displayed, they see who Christ is, every single one you see, they are affected immediately by who God is. And so our knowledge of God is much more than just knowing, it is changing. It's knowledge that transforms. And so Paul in verse 8 calls us to recognize that this is a possibility and to evaluate our lives. How can you know or claim to know the God of the universe and not come away changed? Are you being changed? The more you know of Christ, are you being more conformed into His image? Are you seeking to kill sin in your life and to live unto Christ? Are these things happening daily? It's not enough to know the facts. We have to be transformed. And then we see that this fruitful life that we have with these qualities, they, they produce effectiveness as believers. Notice what he says. If you have these things, they're going to keep you from being ineffective. What does ineffectiveness look like? Well, I think it begins by recognizing a lack of these virtues. So, are you loving others? Or are you focused on yourself? Do you have brotherly love for the congregation, for the people of God? Or are you eh, annoyed by people? Do you have a life that pursues godliness and knowledge of God? Or... Do you have a life that doubts who He is and doubts His power? A life that runs headlong into sin without restraint? A mind that is set on knowing trivial things rather than knowing Christ? In essence, an ineffective knowledge of Christ is a knowledge that does not seek to know and make Christ known. We want to see others sharing in the same 
transforming power that is changing your life. And this ineffectiveness, as he says, brings about also unfruitfulness. It keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful. The Scriptures are clear, abundantly clear, that genuine knowledge of Christ will produce fruit. Jesus says this in John 15 too. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He says in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, so there's the knowledge of Christ, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, these are not just simple words of Jesus saying we need to abide in Him. They are a stark warning to His people. You say you're in me. You're in the branch. You say that you are living in the knowledge of me, but yet you don't have fruit. What happens to vines that don't have fruit? They're cut off. And they're burned in the fire. This is a stark warning from our Savior. And it is what Peter is pointing to. Peter was there when Jesus said these words. And he got the point. He said, listen, these virtues are an evidence that you are having fruit. If you don't have them, then you're not having fruit. And if you're not having fruit, something is wrong with your abiding in Christ. Jesus says, abide in me. Because He is the source of life. He is the vine. We are the branches. And as a branch draws sustenance from the vine, so we draw spiritual sustenance from Christ. And that produces fruit. How do you know if, if a branch is dead? You can go out and look at this, this pine tree over here. I think it's a pine tree. Yeah, one pine tree. And you can look, look up. Actually, it's not a pine tree. This big tree over here. Anyways. And you can look at the bottom, and there's a bunch of dead branches. How do we know where they're dead? I mean, they're still attached to the tree. How do we know they're dead? There's no leaves. There's no fruit. And so Peter is picking up what Jesus is saying, that we need to abide in Christ. The lifeblood of Christ is not running through your veins unless you're bearing fruit. That is the implication of Scripture. We have this idea, unfortunately, in the church in America that we can just sort of add Jesus to the rest of our lives and then we can go about living our lives however we want to. The Bible knows nothing of that. If you're abiding in Christ, you will bear fruit. So what does this fruit look like? Well, it is these virtues. Having these virtues in action in our life are certainly an aspect But Scripture even pulls back a little bit more and gives us a more full-orbed view of what these fruits are. And the first is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And, of course, faith is the first virtue that Peter discusses in our passage. But faith must always be accompanied by repentance. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin. It is actually the first word of the gospel. When Jesus went and began proclaiming the gospel in Matthew chapter 4, the first word he said was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, that focus on the kingdom of heaven being at hand was a focus upon himself. Repent and believe in him. What is really interesting here is that, particularly in Matthew chapter 3, we see that John the Baptist prepares the way for Christ. And what was his message? Repent. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. He sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all right? These are the experts. This would be like the seminary president, the seminary professors, the ones that have all this knowledge accumulated to themselves coming to hear John preach. I I wish I had the boldness of John. There's been a few times where I've had people visiting from a seminary in Detroit or when I would preach uh, in seminary to 
to my professors in homiletics class, I was scared to death of them because their knowledge was so much greater than mine. John the Baptist had no fear of men. He sees them coming, and notice what he says to them. He doesn't call them the leaders of Israel. He doesn't call them the teachers of Israel. He doesn't call them the, the ones that are, that, are, that are living in righteousness. Notice what he calls them. Very, very kind, loving, doesn't want to offend anybody preacher. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says, listen, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice what he calls them to do. That their repentance not just be a repentance outwardly, but that it affect their lives and the way that they live. They were to bear fruit in accordance with repentance. And then notice what he says. Don't presume to say to yourselves, well, I have Abraham as my father. There was a problem that they saw that they sort of had inherited the kingdom because they were Jewish. And we have that same problem today. Oh, yes, I'm a believer. Yes, I'm a Christian because I went to church when my parents told me to go to church or, or I've always been involved in this church or I'm a member of this church or I was baptized at this church and then we live lives that reject the King of glory. God forbid that that be who we are. And so John the Baptist goes on and he says this to those who are claiming to be the children of Abraham, but not showing it. As he called them to bear fruit in repentance, he warns them, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Same thing Jesus said. And then John says, listen, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance. But there's another one who's coming after me. This one is greater than me. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and carry his sandals. And he's going to baptize you as well. In fact, he's going to baptize all of humanity. And there's two baptisms. For those who believe in Him, there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And praise God, that Spirit is the one that drives us into a life of transformation. And then there is another baptism, a baptism of what? Fire. A baptism of fire. And then He speaks in terms, agricultural terms, Christ is carrying a winnowing fork in His hand. He's going to go to the threshing floor and he's going to take the wheat which also has the chaff with it. And as it would happen in those days, he would take that winnowing fork and throw the wheat up in the air and the wind would come by and it would blow the chaff away and the wheat, the true fruit that was needed to make the bread would fall down. And what did they do with the chaff? It was nothing. It was good for nothing except to be kindling. And then he speaks of how that chaff, he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. Now, this is not popular in today's day and age. We don't like to hear about the consequences of sin, and particularly the judgment of God, um, particularly among his own people. But these are, Christ, these, are, these are the inspired words of John the Baptist through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus repeats these same things. And I tell you, we need to understand this warning that Peter is issuing. Listen, if you are not having these virtues, if you are ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't truly know Him. It's a fake knowledge. You're pretending to be His disciple. And there are severe consequences for those who do not bear fruit. So repentance and faith is the first fruit. Secondly, transformed works. Again, faith and works are not in opposition. We have this idea that the two things are opposed to each other, but they are not. In fact, faith gives way to works. 
Again, as John tells us, if we do not bear good fruit, an axe is laid to the root of the tree, and the tree will be cut down. In fact, Paul speaks of this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We're to walk fully pleasing to Him. What does that look like? Bearing what? Fruit. In the things that I'm really good at being good at, is that what he says? Does he limit the extent to which we're to bear fruit? In how many good works? Every good work. And then as we do this, we increase in the knowledge of God. So there is this cycle that happens. True knowledge of Christ produces transformation in our life, which then produces more knowledge of Christ. And the more you know Christ, guess what's going to continue to happen? You're going to continue to be transformed. This is what we call progressive sanctification. Being made holy little bit by little bit from one degree of glory to the next. So we need to be more like Christ today than we were yesterday. That's the implication. We see this particularly as Paul charges Titus, a a pastor. He's charging him. He's saying, listen, this is what I need you to tell your people as you minister to them. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. And then he talks about what that looks like. So as to help cases of urgent need. It's interesting that he he jumps on and focuses on how we're to be compassionate to people who have great needs. And if we're not doing that, if we're not devoting ourselves to good works, if we're not helping those with urgent needs, we are being what? Unfruitful. He calls us to not be unfruitful. You know, the story of the Good Samaritan comes to mind when you think about those in urgent need. Samaritan is robbed, beaten, thrown on the side of the road to die. And you have all the Jewish elite come by. And they pass him by and they don't care about him. And then Jesus says to a Jewish crowd, there was a Samaritan who came by. And that that term had lots of cultural and racially charged points. And Jesus is trying to, first of all, show that the gospel works among all nations. But particularly showing that the person that you likely most despise can be more a child of God than you are and shows it by caring for those in need. And what does the Samaritan do? He binds up his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to a hotel. He pays for his care. He loves this man. What was the final virtue? Love. What does the fruit of love look like? It looks like what that Samaritan did. If we grab a hold of this chains of virtue, if we, it will bring to bear our knowledge of Christ in our actions as we live out, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, faith working in love, through love. So the results of faith begin with a fruitful life. Let me ask you, is this fruit in your life? Peter is not writing these things to us so that we can say, oh, that's nice, and then go about our day. He's calling us to examine ourselves. Do you have a fruitful life? Secondly, he says that it results in an illumined life. Notice what he says in verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The second thing that Peter says, I'm saying in a positive way, is that if we have these things, we will be able to see. We will have an illumined life. Now, he describes this negatively. If you lack these things, you're nearsighted. That word nearsighted is only used once in the New Testament, and that's in our passage here. It has the idea of squinting so that you can see what is not clear. 
And Peter adds to it that spiritually lacking these qualities, you squint so much that you're not able to see at all. You become blind. Now, what is, what is Peter saying here? I think, again, he is showing us that it is possible for us to focus on one aspect of what salvation involves to the neglect of everything that salvation brings. We can be so preoccupied with faith alone that we do not open our eyes to see the full effect of the gospel. This was clearly a problem in the first century. This is why James says that faith without works is what? Dead. It means it's not real. And so, particularly in churches like ours that... that Love the grace of God and trumpet salvation by faith through grace that speak of how God is the one who saves us and it is not of ourselves that we've done this. We can glory in that and then we can go out and live lives just like the world. That's incompatible with what Peter is saying. We've become so focused, so nearsighted, so squinting. When you squint, What ends up happening to the rest of your vision? You maybe be able to see the one thing right in front of you, but everything else becomes what? Blurry. And so Peter is warning us this about this. It also may be the beginning of the warning he's about to give in chapter 2. You know, one of the things that helps us to recognize false teachers is their lack of fruit. Someone comes and, and preaches and it sounds good. It seems like it's okay. But then they go out and they live lives just like the rest of the world. That is a big red flag, a big beeping, flashing red light that this person is not teaching the truth. So whatever focus Peter has in mind here, he is warning of a danger that we can all easily fall into. We can become preoccupied with doctrine and neglect transformation. Now, I love doctrine. I went to college. I went to seminary. I read big, thick books. Some of you have been reading those big, thick books with me. But let us never think that our pursuit of the knowledge of doctrine is the pursuit of God. We're not pursuing just bare knowledge. We're pursuing the Lord of the universe. We cannot be so short-sighted that we become blind. What does that blindness look like? Notice what he says at the end of verse 9. We forget that we've been cleansed from our former sins. What? When we lack these virtues, we're acting as though we have not been cleansed from these sins. That instead of feeling the corruption of our sins, we forget what it is doing in us. We're blind to its effect. And I may be able to quote all the articles of faith from from the creeds in the past, and I may be able to have a strong statement on justification by faith, and I, I may have all the doctrine right, but if I am not transformed by God's grace, I'm blind. I truly know nothing if my knowledge leaves me without transformation. They remind us, these qualities that he speaks of here, they remind us that we've been cleansed. That if we do not pursue them, we we risk becoming complacent and familiar with our own sin. We wallow in the mire of the filth of our rebellion and then we say well i'm okay because i believe the right things peter is challenging that and saying if you are wallowing in the mire of sin you don't truly believe the right things There's a great irony here that we can glory in and sing forcefully when we talk about what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then we can walk out the doors and walk right back into the sin that defiles us. 
we can agree and shout amen when we read of John the Baptist saying that, this, that Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and then we write, run right back to those sins that Christ died to free us from. And that's what he's saying in verse 9. Listen, if you lack these things, you're nearsighted. You're, you may be in the church. He's writing to believers. You may be coming every Sunday. You may be coming every Sunday evening. You may be meeting every day. That's what they were doing in the New Testament church. Every single day they met in each other's houses. You can have all this focus, and yet if you're out there living a life that is filled with sin, you're blind. See, we have to recognize that what Christ sought to accomplish was not just freedom from God's wrath, but freedom from sin itself. Freedom to walk in righteousness. Which brings us then finally to the last thing that we have, and that is an evaluated life. This freedom that we have brings about a fruitful life, an illumined life, an evaluated life. Verses 10 and 11 are well known. They're often quoted. Peter says, therefore, so based upon everything I've just said, what should we do? Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we evaluate our lives, the, the light, as our eyes are open now, we're no longer blind, we're not squinting, but we're looking at the totality of who we are, that then gives us the opportunity to evaluate where we are. We can see clearly now. And what he's saying is, look, evaluate your life based on these virtues. The light of the gospel is now described in its full-orbed view for us. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Not 2, 8 through 9, but through 10. We love Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And hallelujah, Christ receives all glory for our salvation. He did it, we did not. But He saved us for something. He saved us to be His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, or to be like Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is amazing to me, particularly that as Paul ends there with the, the fact that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We, I think sometimes we get off when we talk about election and predestination in that we just think and focus on the fact that God chose us. Hallelujah. Praise God. It humbles us. He chose us not because of who we are, but out of the pure grace and mercy of His heart. Hallelujah, we have that. But He also prepared before the foundations of the world that those whom He chose would walk in good works that we have been eternally predestined to be conformed to Christ. And so we have to recognize that we need to evaluate our lives based on these things. Now again, what are we confirming? We are not confirming our salvation because of our works. And Peter's very clear about this. He calls us to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. What did you have to do with your call? Nothing. God called you. What did you have to do with your election? Nothing. God chose you. These are wondrous acts of God's grace. So what we are confirming in our good works is not that which saves us, but we are confirming that we are saved by God's grace. That's what's happening here. And notice the intensity at which we're supposed to do this. Again, in verse 10, he says, Be all the more diligent. 
This is the same word that's used earlier when he says, make every effort. And here's something I think we're falling short on the command here often. How often do you actually step back and evaluate your life? Does it even cross your mind to evaluate your life? We fall so short of this command. And yet Peter is telling us, make every effort, be diligent, work hard, look at who you are. Does it reflect the grace of God in your life? And then this gives way, finally, to a confident life. And this is the thing I love about how Peter forms his argument here. Because I think sometimes we feel like, well, if I begin to evaluate my life, I'm going to see all the heinousness of my sin, and I'm going to naturally conclude that I'm not a believer. I think sometimes that's a fear when it comes to this evaluation. We, we think about it, and it's like, it's just going to show that I'm not truly God's. But that's not what Peter points to here. Notice what he says. He says in verse 10 that if you practice these qualities, if they're there, you will never fall. You realize that if you have a life that is growing in knowledge, that is being self-controlled, that is changing to be more like Christ, that is loving the church and loving others, that if that is happening, then you will never fall because it shows that you're saved by the God who will never let you go. It brings confidence. It confirms your salvation. It drives you to more surety. You will never fall. And then he punches this great hope firmly home for us by speaking in verse 10. For in this way, when doing these things, you are given something richly. That's an amazing term. You are richly provided. Not, not just enough. Not, not middle class, not uh, inflation-adjusted Social Security payment. Richly. The abundance of God's grace is poured out to you. You are richly provided by God. What are you provided? An entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a key to walking as a pilgrim. Listen, you, you, I could walk today. I, I've, I've walked before in Europe into the palace at Versailles. Right? Beautiful. Gold, gilded things. Big gardens. All sorts of fancy stuff. And thousands of people in the way. <laughs> You know, when I walked into Versailles, it wasn't like there was anyone prominent or anything there. In fact, I wasn't even able to touch most of the stuff. Why? Because while I could visit and walk through, it wasn't mine. Do you realize that the kingdom of Christ, you are able to enter and you enter as someone who is filthy, wealthy in the riches of God's grace. It is richly provided for you. You have a full and complete right to enter into that kingdom. And here's the reality. This world kingdom, it ain't got nothing on the kingdom of Christ. Jesus Christ's glory far surpasses the glory of anything this world can give you. So we have provided for us this rich entrance. In fact, in the book of Revelation, as the eternal kingdom of Christ is described, there is this thing said about that kingdom, that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, what a wonderful hope we have. That our faith does not just give us a ticket to heaven, it changes us. And Peter is calling us here to examine our lives to see if that's true. Are you like Uncle Bill's violin? You claim to be a valuable member of the kingdom of God, worth riches untold, but you lack the true ingredients? There are a lot of people walking around with the label Christian slapped on their lives, but yet the way they live their life shows that they're not a Christian. So what should we do? What is Peter calling us to do? We need to supplement our faith. We need to pursue this inward and outward transformation in these virtues that he speaks of. We need to zealously examine our lives. Listen, my challenge to you today is this afternoon, take some time, get alone, and just pray before the Lord, Father, is this me? Could this be more me? Make it more me by your grace. Listen, it's not optional that you do this. God is commanding you from His Word to do this. Rejoice that as you do that, by God's grace, you're able to see that you are exhibiting these virtues. And that is a testament to you that on the day, the last day, you will be given a rich entrance into the kingdom. Rejoice in that hope. And then live for the glory of Christ. The final thing that I just want us to point to in verse 11, whose kingdom is it? It's not ours. It's Christ's. It is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His kingship over us should drive our lives to be lived for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth that is in it. And Lord, we thank you for Peter's admonition here. Lord, may we seek to be more like Christ. May we seek to examine our lives to see if these things are in us. Father, work by your spirit. We are dependent upon your spirit in all things. May we leave these doors different because we saw the glories and the grace of Christ.